this morning. So we're going to continue our study with the key figures of the Reformation. And if you were with us the last couple of weeks, you may remember that Desmond taught us about a Swiss reformer named Ulrich Zwingli. And this morning, and Lord willing, next week as well, uh, we're going to be looking at another Swiss reformer, Heinrich Bullinger. And as we've done in the past, we'll look first at his life this week, and then next week we'll look at his theology. And sometimes it's hard to separate that. Obviously, his life and theology are mixed in, or they ought to be. Um, So there'll be some overlap, but we'll focus a little more specifically in on his theological views and his contribution during the time of the Reformation. Now, Bullinger was one of seven children. He was the youngest of the seven, and he was born July 18, 1504. And just to kind of put that into perspective, Luther was born 1483, so he's just over 20 years younger than Luther. Uh, Calvin was born in 1509, so he's five years older than Calvin. And he was born in a small Swiss town called Bremgarten, which was 10 miles west of Zurich. And Zurich, again, should be a a familiar place to us. That's where Ulrich Zwingli pastored. And you're going to see the connection between Bullinger and Zwingli as we get a little bit further uh, in this this lesson. Now, interestingly, Bullinger's father was the parish priest there in his hometown of Bremgarten. And why that should be interesting, at least, is because the vow of celibacy that priests had to take And so Bullinger, our senior, uh, because his name was Heinrich as well, um, he and his wife have have seven children. So how does that work out? Well, Desmond kind of explained that a little bit last week, that in certain areas, you didn't have as tight of restrictions as you did in some other areas. And in addition to that, here's another very key component. In order for Bullinger Sr. to be married to his wife, which was called a common law marriage, which means it was legal, but it was not recognized by by the church. So it was called a common law marriage. And in order for him to be married to his wife in this common law marriage, he had to pay a yearly tribute to the bishop over this region. So, of course, exactly. So as you can see, Money is always tied in with this uh, Roman Catholic influence that was going on here. So he had to, uh, to pay for that, and he did each year. And his desire was that his youngest son, Heinrich, would follow in his footsteps into the priesthood. And so at the age of 12, he sends his son away to a monastic school in Emmerich, Germany. So just kind of in, in your mind there, Germany, north of Switzerland. It was about 480 miles north of, of where he lived. So it was a good distance away. And as he sent his son away, he said, I will pay for your shelter and your clothing, but not your food. Okay, so just think about this. He's 12 years old being sent away. I'm going to pay for your shelter and clothing, but not your food. You're going to have to find a way to provide for yourself to get your food. And his father's mindset in in doing that was he wanted Heinrich to understand how the poor lived. And he thought that this would develop good, healthy habits in his life. Now, thankfully, Heinrich had a very good, trained voice. And so he was able to sing for his food, essentially. And he would do that for the next three years. 
While he's there at this school in Emmerich, he comes under the influence of what was called at that time the modern devotion. And this kind of movement or the emphasis of this teaching focused on two things. Number one, the importance of the Lord's Supper or, or the Eucharist. And then the second thing that it focused on was the need to develop a deep spiritual life. And Bullinger was really attracted to this movement's stress on meditation and this search for a personal spiritual experience with God. Now, when we hear that today in our context, when we think about this personal spiritual experience with God, our minds kind of maybe drift off a little bit and you're like, that sounds kind of charismatic that he's you know, looking for things. But again, when you put it into its proper context, you understand he's wrapped up in the middle of just nothing but religious tradition and dead theology, essentially. And so we, we don't want to fault him too quickly. Uh, and perhaps those of you that have been involved or have come out of Roman Catholicism that you can testify to this uh, as well. Now, Bullinger is not converted yet at this point, but you can see God's grace working in his heart already to kind of help him to see the deadness of this. And it just kind of struck me as I was going through this, after I became a Christian, I came out of the Roman Catholic Church, I didn't have anybody witnessing to me or discipling me, so I went back into the Catholic Church for six months after I became a Christian. And I remember just fervently praying the rosary and going through all the things that were set up within the Roman Catholic system. And I remember thinking of the deadness of this. And I couldn't put my finger on it because nobody's telling me, here are the errors. But as I read that, I thought, man, I understand where Bullinger was going, uh, where he's coming from. Even though he wasn't converted yet at this point, you can see God already working in his heart. While he's there at this school in Emmerich, he really develops this keen academic mind. Uh, it's becoming clear that this guy is um, going to be a very studied, learned man based off of uh, how he was giving himself to study. He had a real aptitude for scholarship. So three years later, after he goes through this school, in 1519, he transitions to the University of Cologne. Cologne was Germany's largest city, and it was known as the German Rome because of the papist power that was there in this, in this city. So it was deeply entrenched in Roman Catholicism. And like I said, that, that would vary from what they called cantons or states. As you went into different areas, you would find a stronger influence over here and maybe a weaker influence over here. But University of Cologne... That was really the center of papist power in this country. And it's while Bullinger is here at the University of Cologne that he purchases his first New Testament. And he begins to read. And as he begins reading, he begins to, to see the errors within the Roman Catholic teaching. Not, not exactly, he can't pinpoint everything, but what he's reading is bumping into the things that he's hearing within his church. And so he starts to become very critical of Rome's dogmas or its official teachings. Rome claimed that her authority was in line with the scriptures and also with what the church fathers taught. So as Heinrich is studying the New Testament, he's also studying the church fathers as well, specifically Ambrose, Chrysostom, 
and Augustine. And as he's reading these guys, he's seeing how much emphasis they put on the necessity of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. And so he's thinking, okay, here's what the church is teaching me, and yet here's what the church fathers are truly saying, that the, that, that the Scriptures are the pinnacle, and everything flows forth from that. So he's, he's working through all of this. He's seeing how the church fathers denounce idols, and he's looking around, and he's starting to get categories for these things and see these idols that are around him. So his time there was really influential as he was looking at the contrast of what he was reading and learning uh, regarding his experience with Catholicism. So he's got his hands on the New Testament, he's got his hands on the church fathers, and then he gets his hands on Luther's writings. And it's interesting how this comes about. During this time, and, and just to kind of put this in perspective, okay, so 1517, Luther nails the... Uh, 95 Theses on the church door there in Wittenberg. Here's Heinrich in, at the University of Cologne, 1519 through 1522 or so. He gets his hands on Luther's writings, and how that happened was at the University of Cologne, and this was the only university in Germany where they were doing this, they were burning Luther's writings. And it had the adverse effect from what they were hoping to accomplish. Right? Rather than deterring Heinrich from saying, okay, I shouldn't look at those, it piques his interest. And he wants to know, why are they burning these writings? <laughs> and so he gets his hands on Luther's writings, and as he does, he is riveted by what he's reading regarding Luther's understanding of the church, and specifically his exposition of the scriptures. So he's got his hands on the word of God the church fathers, now Luther's writings, and then he also gets his hands on Philip Melanchthon's systematic theology of Luther's writings. So Melanchthon really, the, the theologian, puts what Luther's saying and puts it together in a nice systematic form. And so he begins reading this. And as he has all these influences coming at him at this, at this one point, he understands, as Melanchthon really did a good job of kind of putting together, formulating the reformed doctrines of the bondage of the will and also justification by faith alone. So as he's looking at all of this, that is when he gets converted at the age of 17. He understands that justification is by God-given faith alone and through God's grace alone apart from man's work. So there's a lot going on there at the University of, of Cologne for Heinrich Bullinger. And in the middle of this, while he's there at the university for three years, he gets his bachelor's degree and his master's degree during those three years. So not slothful. I was often wanted to go back and be like, what was the curriculum during that time, right? Because that just doesn't seem possible. Um, didn't have the internet. No, he didn't. No, that's, that's true. Um, but I think it testifies, again, to uh, just the way that he had given himself to study. So, graduates from the University of Cologne, heads back to Bremgarten in 1522. And, and he's, a, he's a changed man as he walks back to Bremgarten. He's 18 years old. And as he heads back, he's wondering, how is my father, the parish priest, going to respond to this news that I'm abandoning this Roman Catholic uh, tradition and, and teaching during this time. Well, his father amazingly responds very kindly. And, and he says, 
keep going with what you're reading. Keep, keep looking at that. And so you see God working in his father's heart at the same time. Amber. Heinrich was born 20 years after Luther. So um, Luther nails the uh, 95 Theses on the door, 1517. Heinrich is at University of Cologne, 1519 through 1522. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just beginning to, to spread at this point. And you'll see, like, when you get into Switzerland, I was amazed at how fast this thing really spread. When you think about it, especially during that time, I know the printing press is there, and we're like, oh, wow, the advent of the printing press and things are blowing up. And that's true, but not like, you know, when we think blow up, we're like, hey, I can send a text to somebody in Taiwan, you know, and it'll be there in, you know, five seconds. That, that's blowing up, right? Um, so it was a little... It's so hard to grasp how slow things Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. So it's amazing when you look back and you see how fast it's moving during that time. It's blowing up, according to those, those standards there. George. No pun intended, but they were like ambers. They were gradually Amen. Up fire. Yes, nice, George. Da-da-da. Always. always. Always the one-liner, George. It's good, brother. I appreciate that. Okay. So while he's back at home, he continues to give himself to the study of the scriptures, uh, to the church fathers, Luther's writings, Melanchthon. And a year after he arrives back at home in 1523, he's offered a position to teach at a monastery in Capel, which was just north of his, of his hometown. Well, he's offered this position, and Bullinger thinks, okay, well, I've got to let the abbot or the the one who's overseeing this monastery, know where I'm at. And so he shares his testimony with this guy. It doesn't at all dissuade this abbot. As a matter of fact, the abbot says, I'm making you superintendent of the monastery. So Bullinger walks in, writes all the curriculum for this monastery from a Reformed perspective. And he begins teaching it. Within four years of him being in this monastery, all the monks there become Protestant. During his six years, which from 1523 to 1529 at this monastery, he expounds on 21 out of the 27 New Testament books. And it was interesting, what he did is he used the Swiss-German language or the common language rather than the Latin so that not only the monks who were there could learn it, but the servants within this monastery could understand what Bullinger was talking about. So it was a, a great revival just in this, in this little area. Now, while he's teaching and superintending at this school, he's also involved with the church associated with this monastery, or called the Abbey Church. And during his time there, in 1526... He begins removing the images from the church. He abolishes the mass, and he introduces the reformed view of the Lord's Supper during this time. Now, again, this is 1526, Luther 1517, right? So you can just see already the influence that this is having uh, during that time. Just a massive impact already on the church there in Switzerland. Now, during that time, so he's teaching, he's superintending helping out in the Abbey Church here. He takes a five-month leave of absence, and he makes a trip to Zurich. And that would be a life-changing trip for him. 
as he gets to Zurich, Zwingli is lecturing, and he goes to hear these lectures by Zwingli, and he's riveted by what he's hearing from Zwingli. It starts this relationship between the two that would not only affect Bullinger, but really the Swiss Reformation as a whole. As that relationship develops, Bullinger is appointed to accompany Zwingli to what was called the disputation in Bern. Bern was southwest of Zurich. And that was in January of 1528. And at this disputation, the 10 theses of Bern were presented and subscribed. Okay, so again, just think of the timetable here, 1517 with Luther, 1528 are when these 10 theses of Bern were presented. If you remember Desmond mentioning in his class, during the first 50 years of the Reformation, at least 50 confessional statements of some type are put out as, as they're looking at these things. And what struck me is, I'm going to walk us through these 10 theses of Bern because I've, I'm just trying to think, okay, this is nine years after, after Luther, uh, I'm sorry, 11 years after Luther uh, nails these 95 theses on the door. And watch what these 10 theses uh, state here. And just think about the development of the theology already as, as it goes along. Okay, so here's number one. And, okay, and I want to see if we can pick out why this would have been important, right? Because thinking about what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching, why would this have been important? The holy Christian church, whose only head is Christ, is born of the word of God and abides in the same and listens not to the voice of a stranger. Now, why is that important? What, what, what's it a shot at? Yeah, right? It's the whose only head is Christ, right? So just, they're just, they're, they're putting, it's, it's awesome to see how they're putting their theology together uh, during this time. Number two, the church of Christ makes no laws and commandments without the word of God. Hence, human traditions are no more binding on us than they are founded in the word of God. Isn't that awesome? I was just rejoicing as I was reading through this. This is, this is great stuff here. Number three, Christ is the only wisdom, righteousness, redemption, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Hence, it is a denial of Christ when we confess another ground of salvation and satisfaction. Amen. Just, just cutting right in to the Roman Catholic teaching. Number four, the essential and corporeal presence of the body and blood of Christ cannot be demonstrated from the Holy Scripture. Wow. It just hits right on transubstantiation, but not only that, but consubstantiation as well with what, what Luther. So you can see how they're pulling away from Luther a little bit in this as well, which we'll pick up a little bit on next week when we see Bullinger and Calvin getting together and discussing the sacraments. Number five. The mass as now in use in which Christ is offered to God the Father for the sins of the living and the dead is contrary to Scripture. A blasphemy against the most holy sacrifice, passion, and death of Christ and on account of its abuses, an abomination before God. Number six, as Christ alone died for us, 
So he is also to be adored as the only mediator and advocate between God the Father and the believers. Therefore, it is contrary to the word of God to propose and invoke other mediators. Amen. Yeah. You're, you're, you're praying to saints? No. Right? And they're just cutting through all of this. Now, Rome's going to respond, as you remember, in the Council of Trent in 1545 through 63. But it's just great to see this development in their minds. Scripture knows nothing of a purgatory after this life. Hence, all masses and other offices for the dead are useless. I mean, these guys are not pulling any punches here. Just like, how plain can we make this? Number eight, the worship of images is contrary to the Scripture. Therefore, images should be abolished when they are set up as objects of adoration. Number nine, Matrimony is not forbidden in the scripture to any class of men, but permitted to all. And to that, Heinrich Sr. said, Amen. <laughs> I'm embracing the Reformed tradition. And he did, and he got kicked out of his church, which I'll get to in a minute. But Number 10, last one. Since, according to scripture, an open fornicator must be excommunicated, referencing 1 Corinthians 5. It follows that unchastity and impure celibacy are more pernicious to the clergy than to any other class. Wow. Just, just calling people out, right? This, this fornication, that's, and they're, they're aiming right there at the priests, right? Okay, if it's, if it's wrong for, for these guys, it's definitely wrong for this. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. So the word of God's informing their minds as that's getting into their hands. They're looking at this. They're looking at what the Roman Catholic Church is teaching. And things like this, like I said, over 50 confessions over those first 50 years, they're just one after another. It's like we've got to say something about this and something about this. And some of them are expanded more. Um, but others, I mean, just 10 theses, hey, here's what we subscribe. According to our learning at this point, we can stand upon these things. And they'll expound on them more as the Reformation goes on. Nancy? Did, did, during the writing of these, did, did they cite scripture in, in any of the written? Uh, you know, yeah. 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 I didn't see anything officially attached to that. Um, so I don't know definitively. Obviously, they have scriptures in mind when they're writing this. But I didn't see anything where you have scripture references, which, which I, I think a lot of them didn't have specific citations like we do today. Um, a lot of them were written up in accordance with the word of God, but maybe not cited as, as such. Um, but certainly can be defended from scripture. And as they're, as they're reading the scriptures, they're obviously, you know, like number 10, sense according to scripture. So they have in mind specifically uh, 1 Corinthians 5 there. does. Yes. Uh, as it points to a certain doctrine. Yeah. And then the end of that is that doctrine in paragraph. That's right. That's right. So they're, yep. they're doing that Jesus sort of in the Yeah. And they're putting out the statement. Yes. Uh, the of the That's right. Amen. Yep. Absolutely. So, yeah. So there's, there's just, a, you know, a wonderful. And so Bullinger, 
gets, gets pulled into this. So you see how in his mind already developments are happening before he even gets this invitation to go with Zwingli to this disputation in Bern. But as he's there, he's really just able to start to see the inner workings of the Reformation and, and how, this is, how this is going on. And so that was just life-changing for Bullinger. So after that, each year, he would make a trip to Zurich to meet with Bullinger to discuss theology. And in reality, he actually, or, or with um, Zwingli to discuss theology, in reality, he goes way beyond Zwingli and, and his influence. You, you just see him blossom and the influence that he had. He starts writing commentaries, putting uh, all kinds of thoughts down together. He writes more than Calvin, Luther, and Zwingli did combined on commentaries and other, other writings. So this guy is putting pen to paper and just, you see his mind working and how he's formulating all these, all these different things. And we'll get into that a little bit next week as we look at his interaction with, uh, with Calvin uh, regarding the sacraments. So later on in 1528, he becomes the part-time pastor of the village church at Hausen, which was near Capel, which is, that's where he was with that, that monastery. And it was really during this time where his preaching skill developed, and he started to really come into his own as a preacher of the Word of God. That All that theology that he had been studying and he's putting pen to paper is now coming out in the pulpit as he begins to proclaim the word of God. During this same time, as I mentioned earlier, Heinrich Sr. notifies his congregation in Bremgarten that he too has embraced the teachings uh, of the Reformation, the tenets of the Reformation. And according to the new Reformed view, such as we saw in these 10 Theses of Bern, he officially marries Heinrich's mother after their 40 years of common law marriage. Now, when the town authorities hear about this, they immediately dismiss him from his position. But what's interesting in this, and I don't know all the, all the details behind this, but from what I read, so Heinrich Sr. is put out by the town officials, but then there's this desire to bring him back. But after they put him out, he goes into another city and he becomes a pastor of another church there. So their desire to bring him back later fails because he's already rooted now in another city. So they end up offering the position to Heinrich Jr. And he steps into the pulpit of the church that he grew up there in Bremgarten. And he preaches his first sermon at his home church in May of 1529. And it's a powerful sermon on what it means to worship God in spirit and in truth. So powerful that after his sermon ends, and remember this Reformation isn't necessarily something that just happened overnight, right? you got a lot of things as they're putting things together and they're looking at things. After he finishes this sermon, all the images and the altar in the church are removed. And the congregation dedicates themselves to this new faith that they've just so clearly heard about from Heinrich Jr. So he was being used mightily by God uh, to spread this Reformation there in Switzerland. Well, over the summer in 1529, he takes a short leave from the school and the church that he's just transferred to, and he's on the hunt for a bride. And like Luther, 
he ends up going to a convent where he heard that the nuns had embraced this, the tenets of the Reformation, and he meets a woman named Anna Adeschweiler. And the two were married. They end up having 11 children of their own and adopting more on top of that. And what was, what was amazing about this, they have six sons, and all six of these sons end up becoming pastors after. What a, what a legacy this guy yeah, left. Huh? Say it again. All his sabbaticals were good. Yes, they were, absolutely. Yeah, any leave of absence yeah. seemed very productive in one way or another. Yes, indeed. So over the next couple of years, with the, with the influence of Zwingli and Bullinger, the Reformation really just continues to, to spread mightily throughout Switzerland. Um, but again, with that spread comes opposition from the Roman Catholic Church. The church was absolutely alarmed at this rise and spread of Reformed theology in Zurich, and Desmond alluded to this a little bit. They declare war against it in October of 1531. Unfortunately, no other uh, Protestant canton or state there in Switzerland offers Zurich any support. And so on October 11, 1531, at the Battle of Capel, the Protestants were ambushed, and Zwingli, who was the military chaplain, was killed. And Zurich was forced to accept really unfavorable terms of peace um, at that time. And from this, some of the regions there in Switzerland, including Bremgarten, where you know, Bullinger was having such a massive effect, um, revert back to Catholicism. Uh, so there's this, this setback uh, in Switzerland. And Bullinger, they know about Bullinger and this effect that he's having. So he becomes a primary target. And he hears about this and he flees for his life from Bremgarten and he ends up going to Zurich. He's threatened with the scaffold if he does not renounce his teachings there in Bremgarten. So he, he picks up and moves, goes to Zurich. And while he's in Zurich, with Zwingli, now dead, he's prevailed upon by the church there to, to preach. And he ends up getting up there and, and preaching so powerfully that the people, you're the man. You're, you're staying here. As a matter of fact, one of Zwingli's followers, Oswald Maconius, says this, like the phoenix, he that is, Zwingli has risen from the ashes when he hears Bullinger preach. Um, so he's, he's seeing that continuation. And so Bullinger takes that pulpit there, and he stays there for the next 44 years. And he pastors there in Zurich. Now, the council of the church there in Zurich agrees the guarantee for the clergy, for specifically Bullinger, to preach on all aspects of life in this city. 
Um, that was one of the terms that Bullinger was like, if I'm going to pastor here, I have to have free reign to just proclaim the word of God. And everybody's like, yes and amen. So he stays in that pulpit for 44 years until his death in 1575. Uh, Bullinger, as a, as a preacher, just tireless. He's preaching six or seven times a week for the first 10 years that he's there in Zurich. It, it's, it's estimated that he preached between 7,000 and 7,500 sermons. And he picks up on Zwingli's style of preaching, which is verse by verse, book by book preaching, just expositorily working through the scriptures. And those expositions become the basis for the commentaries that he would spread out and that were widely used, covering much, much of the Bible. You know, in addition to that, you see he's a very tender-hearted pastor, opened his home frequently to widows, orphans, strangers, persecuted brethren, he's freely giving away food, clothing, money to those in need. As a matter of fact, after Zwingli died, he secures a pension for Zwingli's widow and brings his children, Zwingli's children in and educates them as his own. So you see... That boldness and tenderness mixed together um, in, in Bullinger. Now, we're, we're going to get more specifically into his theology next week, but I just want to mention here that his theological abilities allowed him really to associate on many levels within, within society. He helped co-author the first Helvetic Convection, which was the first uh, national Swiss confession in 1536. And he also plays a key role in a document that was called Consensus to Gurnius. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I could be wrong if somebody knows differently. But that was the document that was drafted by Calvin along with the uh, church there in Zurich, Bullinger being the main, um, the main one leading that. And really it was an attempt to, to rectify any disagreements over the Lord's Supper. And I'll hit on that more next week, but their discussions over this document, during those discussions, uh, Bullinger invited Calvin to Zurich uh, for face-to-face -face talks, and Calvin accepted that invitation to come, and that document that we'll look at next week that I'll reference is a product of that agreement uh, that they were able to come to on the sacraments, not only the Lord's Supper, but baptism as well. Uh, so he has massive influence within those that were being used mightily by God in the Reformation. He's also consulted by English royalty uh, for, for just his views on, on life. He has just this total understanding of how theology and life go together. And so he ends up associating with Edward VI, Elizabeth I, um, and he really viewed the, the leaders there in the Church of England as fellow Reformed, Reformed churchmen who were, who were really struggling against Rome. Uh, just, those, just as those in Switzerland were. He also converses with other leaders in the Reformed movement, and really he had an eye on, on how to take all of this new teaching, which is really old teaching, but that was been buried for so many years, to bring it together, and as it's being worked through by those in the Reformation, of how to keep that unity in the midst of all these studies. He was really laboring to make sure that unity was being kept amongst those um, within the Reformed 
community. So many in the Reformed community consulted him just really for his wise and balanced view um, and counsel um, over, these, over these issues. So in his closing years, uh, Bullinger suffers the tragic death of his wife and several of their daughters uh, during the outbreaks of the plague in 1564 and 1565. And Bullinger, Bullinger himself um, you know, contracts this plague. It doesn't take his life, but it affects his health so severely uh, that over the next 10 years, he's just constantly uh, fighting against it until his death in September of 1575 after just four decades of tireless and effective uh, ministry. And he just leaves behind this rich legacy in the truth of God's sovereign grace that really helped to give a lot of theological and ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical structure uh, to the Reformation. So kind of like you guys, you know, as, as I was working through Bullinger, I thought this man needs to be known more than, more than he was. Um, and, and I hope this has just been a good introduction. There's a lot more to say. There's a lot of stuff that you can, you can read about him. Uh, but we'll get specifically into his theology next week. Uh, he was really the main writer of the Second Helvetic Confession, and we'll spend some time looking at that and uh, how he's just categorizing everything and putting everything together um, to be a, a, a mighty instrument in the hand of God uh, during, this, during this time. All right? Let me close in prayer since we're, since we're out of time here. Okay. Father, thank you for uh, this time of, of study. And Lord, just being able to look back in history and to see your mighty sovereign hand working through the lives of your people to spread your gospel uh, to the ends of the earth and to purify your church. Father, I pray that we can learn from Heinrich Bollinger, that we can see his boldness to stand for the truth of your word, and we can see his tenderness and caring for the people of God. Uh, grant us that balance in our day, Lord that your name would be, would be glorified and we would allow the effect of the saints who have gone before them as, as we look at their lives and we imitate them as they imitate Christ. Uh, we pray that you would help us to that end and we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>